Hi, everyone. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner at OpenView, where I spend a lot of time talking to both aspiring and serial board members. This season on Build, we're talking about the journey to the boardroom. Each week, I'll speak with executives who will share their unique stories and insights to help you either consider what type of persona to bring onto your board if you're a CEO, and or help you think through what your path will be to get to the boardroom as an independent director. Now, on with the show. Today, we are joined by John True, who's a general partner at Cultivation Capital. John's most recent operational experience was serving as the SVP of field operations at Guidewire, which, as we all know, is a highly successful enterprise software company that went public back in 2012. In the 20 years prior to Guidewire, he held sales executive roles and GM positions for companies like Fortify, which was acquired by HP, Equalogic, which was acquired by Dell, Reba, which went public and then was acquired by SAP, and he started his career at PTC. John currently holds a number of board seats. He's had a very successful career as a board member as well, and he sits on the board of Llamasoft, Agilis Systems. Observable Networks, and SalesView. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. It is great to be here. I'm excited to be a part of the OpenView content. Let's go back to the early days in your career. Where did you start? You graduate. Where do you go? (laughs) I graduated with a degree in computer science, but uh, had very little aptitude or talent towards coding. What made you go into uh, into that career in the first place? You just always had sort of a, a curiosity about technology and software? I did. I always had a curiosity around technology. I originally thought I had aspirations of, of being a lawyer involved in IP, but quickly turned my attention to sales and marketing, primarily because of my father. He's really my mentor in general. We have a great relationship, lifetime relationship, and he was a professional sales and marketing guy and convinced me that a combination of what he knew about me and my skills and general curiosity as well as uh, as how to have impact on teams that he thought sales would be a good place to start for me. So uh, I took his advice. Tell me about your first job, your first sales job. I got really lucky. I think of my first sales jobs as the first two positions. The first position was with a Boston-based company called Data General back in the, the heyday of many computers. I feel very old talking about many computers these days. But what was interesting about Data General is uh, they provided an interesting balance. They really invested in training young green folks out of school through a sales boot camp. They bought a girls' college in Worcester, Massachusetts, and shipped folks up there for one month at a time, then back into the field for a month, and really invested in trying to develop skills. But then they also were willing to throw the young folks to the wolves, allow them to succeed or fail pretty quickly, and, and make money and establish some career milestones quickly. So I got really lucky that a company was willing to put young folks in that position. And able to spend some time in beautiful Worcester while you were at it. Yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> and probably my second job was really the, the one that uh, molded at least my career and my thinking about how to manage career and positions over time. And it, it was very fortunate. I got recruited to a company called Parametric Technology, another Boston-based firm, and really no science behind how, how I evaluated taking the job. I had come from a school that was primarily uh, engineering related and understood and dealt with folks with an engineering mindset all through school. They sold engineering software as a very early stage startup, less than 5 million and definitely under the category of rather be lucky than good. So I stayed there for the next decade as they grew from 5 million to over a billion uh, in revenue. And it was really the MBA uh, uh, for me kind of on the job training and then just a tremendous network of folks that I grew up together with learning and understanding how to scale a business like that from many great mentors and many great folks that, like me, were learning, were learning on the fly. Yeah, I've heard, I mean, there are so many great people in the network who have the PTC roots and have gone through their PTC days, and that kind of shapes the rest of their career. And I think you're right, that network that comes from being at a company that 
has that kind of success. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, and they really lean towards the parametric, which I love to see in startups these days is they leaned heavily toward promoting from within and putting people in positions of responsibility for their first time and really forced people to try to step up and very rarely brought folks in from the outside. Now that provided a culture sometimes that made it extra difficult for people to come in from the outside and survive because it was very much a clubby atmosphere. You had to prove your worth almost as an individual contributor before you were respected in leadership or management, but that served the company very well over a long period of time. And then let's talk about the move after PTC because I want to make sure we hit upon some of these companies that you were with and had these impressive roles with because it's really quite amazing. It's almost like you had a crystal ball. You knew the right companies to, to go to. Or maybe, you know, there's more of a science to it. We'd love to hear about how you, you made some of these good choices. Very good fortune, mostly, and a network of extraordinarily talented people. So pretty consistent for my job stops were almost always aligned with relationships of people that were much more talented than I that I'd worked with in the past and went on to another endeavor. And so I left Parametric. We had acquired a couple companies. One of the companies we acquired, the president was Keith Kroc. When he left Parametric, he founded the software company Ariba. And they, in the bubble time, were one of the fastest growing software companies in history at the time. So I had the luxury of not going there quite so early. And there were plenty of proof points of tremendous momentum with that business. And so Keith recruited me to run the sales organization at, at Ariba and had just um, a wonderful run there. And I think it that was 99 to 2004, right? That's right. And Can you tell I've been creeping on your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. And Ariba was a blast for two reasons. One, the growth was magnificent for the first three years. And so the challenges of scaling a company at very fast rate at, at high scale and, and learning about that. And then the flip side of that, and I made the decision to be one of the few once the bubble burst to uh, help kind of pivot the company and reinvent the company. And so we ended up reducing headcount by uh, more than 60% and ended up being the only survivor in the space that we were after the bubble burst. And so, you know, I like to say I made a little more money on the way up, but I just learned a lot more, especially about leadership on the way down and how to assess and find the people that wanted, that would be in the boat and fight when the times were the most difficult. And those tend to be the most valuable of teammates over time. So from Ariba made the move to Equalogic. Clearly had a great run, good solid five years, incredible growth with Ariba. What made you decide to look elsewhere in 2004 and why'd you choose Equalogic? We were fortunate enough to adopt a newborn. Me and my wife, I took a small break to help for the first six months that we had the newborn. And so it was a, it was a blast. I had been traveling quite a bit. Our home is in St. Louis, Missouri, and my main office for Rebo is in Silicon Valley. So I had a corporate apartment there and was on the road quite a bit. And so it was a great opportunity that I had to spend time with family and uh, our adopted son, Zach, who is now a freshman in high school and uh, doing quite well. And so the next step was also part of the network. One of my compadres at uh, Parametric Technology, who during the bubble time and moved to Silicon Valley, had a great run. His name is Kirk Bowman. He's currently an operating partner at Excel. Got recruited to Equalogic. They were looking to bring in a couple executives who had been through the process of, of taking a company public. They were within 12 months of filing, didn't have anyone on the, the current team that had gone through the process before. And so they brought Kirk and me in to help kind of do some of the things required to be able to scale and scale predictably as a public company. And so uh, ended up being a pretty short run, uh, 18 or to 24 months. We helped to change all the back office systems, kind of put some management structure in place to be able to scale a recruiting engine to have a predictable uh, revenue stream. And just as we were getting ready to go public around the roadshow, two storage companies, it was in the, we were in the business of storage area networks and two storage companies made bids for the company. And so they ended up in an auction and we ended up being the first billion dollar acquisition for uh, Dell at the time. It was a great experience. The first time I had been through an acquisition on the sell side. Uh, and so had a blast being a part of learning and influencing the process and then watching how uh, integration worked from a company like Dell who had uh, had tremendous success in uh, scaling, but was very new to uh, the M&A world. 
Got it. And then after um, Equalogic was acquired by Dell, at that point, you parted ways? Or did you not want to? We did. Dell took, I think, most everyone except the head of development, gave them packages. They quickly integrated the sales organization into their field mm-hmm. group. It was one of the most successful M&A stories that I have been a part of now through the 30 years of my career. And that What made it so successful? They acquired us when we were 120 million in, in revenue, and they had typical M&A models with some big synergy numbers that many of us didn't, didn't think were possible. And they, we were a 100% channel business. They plugged us into their direct sales channel and went from 120 to, to uh, 500 million in 24 months. And so it ended up being a tremendously accretive acquisition for Dell. Very unusual in the technology space for it to be successful, but especially to be successful that quickly. Obviously, with Equalogic, it was a bit larger when you had joined. I'm assuming just approaching 100 million or, or slightly larger. I think it was 70 million. And seven, we went from 70 to 120. I think in the uh, in the full year that I was there. Yeah. So when you started with Parametric, you said it was around five million revenue or in the early days. That's right. What were the the pros and cons of being in a later stage company versus an early? What's your preference? Did you enjoy the earlier company? sales team development or jumping in around that 70 million mark? They should provide their unique advantages and, and challenges. Strictly from a financial standpoint, the later stage from an equity standpoint, the risk is quite manageable. And if you can pick companies that have tremendous upside, you can make sure you don't end up with a goose egg. Most young folks don't have that advantage and they have to gain skills and help build you know, a, a successful company before they get oftentimes can mm-hmm. compete for those jobs that are later stage, that are leaders in their market. The advantage for Parametric in the early stage, the risk was much higher, could have been the one in 10 startup at that stage that uh, don't succeed. But the advantage was clear in that they were willing to give very young folks tremendous opportunity if you succeeded. And so I think the advantage of an early stage company is is that in general, is that you get the opportunity to see most of the disciplines in the company, if you succeed in one area, oftentimes you're offered to get exposure to other areas of the business, which rounds your skill set out. And it's an opportunity that in a later stage company, oftentimes you'll be pretty much focused on whatever area of specialty or, or skill that you have going into that company. The later stage companies, oftentimes the downside is there isn't a lot of runway in terms of potential equity upside, unless you pick companies that produce outsized returns for their mm-hmm. venture funds, ones that just beginning and have the opportunities to be the leader in their particular market in a market that's either really large or growing really fast. And when you made these moves over the course of your career, I know you said that you know you followed great leaders um, and surrounded yourself with with smart people. But when you were considering your next opportunity, were you thinking about that sort of thing? Were you thinking about like, does this have the opportunity to be the next market leader? What's the market size here? How, you know, where are they now? What are they? Tell me about your thought process because I go back to my statement earlier you have a great track record of working for companies who had outstanding outcomes. So we'd love to know a little bit more about your thought process there, because I'm sure people could learn from that. I've evolved my thinking about how to pick companies as I've gotten older. I think earlier in my career, um, I leaned on kind of two pieces of advice that I got from uh, Dick Harrison, actually, who uh, looked after worldwide sales at, at Parametric and then became the CEO. And the two pieces of advice he gave were one, a small piece of equity in something very large is always more valuable than a huge ownership position in something that's small. So make sure that you pick something that has the potential anyway to be very big. And the second is to surround yourself with people that are obviously smarter and more talented than you. And I can I can say for almost every company that I've been involved in, those two things have been the case. And as I involved later in my career, the last uh, couple stops as an operator and then as I've begun to learn the venture world, I've gotten kind of much much more data-driven and scientific about how to pick companies and invest in them. The forensics around team and market and momentum 
those things have become much more the forefront for me, but I still look for those folks that are smarter than me. It's a pretty low bar, but I really want folks that have unique passion, a very specific purpose in what they're trying to do, and then uh, extraordinarily talented with great upside. You're very humble, John. <laughs> Before we dig into when you started to really kind of consider board seats and go sort of the venture route, I want to cover um, Fortify Software, which was acquired by HP, and then also Guidewire, which if I'm looking at the dates correctly, you started right before they IPO'd. Again, two very successful companies. Take us back a little bit through that journey because I don't want to dismiss those those events in, in your resume here. Both, once again, were um, previous relationships. One of the greatest advantages of being a part of companies that are very successful, you get credit, more credit than you deserve for their success if you participated in it. And so Equalogic, the largest investor was uh, Sigma. And so they introduced me to Kleiner Perkins and to the operators at Fortify. And they were early in what was a very fast growing market in the application security space. That was a great ride and a very functional management team and board, which was incredibly enticing to me. Very mature, very mature team. And uh, we were acquired by HP to help start their first security business. They acquired three security companies at the time. And so it was a lot of fun. I stuck around there for 12 months and was a part of the entire integration process into Hewlett Packard. So that was another great learning for me. And when you started there, did you move into Fortify as the head of sales and then from there move into a COO role? Or was this your first COO role? And did you start in that position right out of the gate? I started in that position out of the right out of the gate. And in the COO role at Fortify really meant running the front part of the business, which was the go-to-market team and the services team, and then a portion of marketing, which was the field marketing team. And so it started as a CEO. It could have been called a CRO. I've never been big on titles. They had decided that they wanted to have a title primarily because at the time there was a VP of sales that had, that had been there early and, and the goal of the board and the senior team was to keep him. And so they created a new position. And then Guidewire, was that a network introduction as well? Did you seek that company out? Obviously, they were already quite large and successful when you joined, but then you know had a major milestone shortly thereafter. Tell me about that role and your time there. So once again, relationships matter. So Guidewire, chronological standpoint, was my first board seat. So during my time at Ariba, a few of uh, my colleagues from Ariba left and founded Guidewire. And they got funded, and I was fortunate enough they asked me to be the first independent board director for Guidewire in the early 2000s. Because I was at Ariba and spent spending most of my time in the area, I took that role as, and really was the only board seat that I had during my time at Ariba. But I had a blast and really got introduced to what it meant to be on the board, the different roles that an independent board director could or should play. I then left the board when I left Ariba because I wasn't in the, the Bay Area much, but kept very much in contact with the management team at Guidewire over the ensuing seven years. And so had a long-term relationship and they once again were similar to Equalogic, were late staged and had kind of a 12 to 18 month horizon in front of them where they thought they were going to go public and were looking for someone to run the front half of their business who had had both experience in taking a company public and, and helping with that sales process. But really what they were looking for is help in kind of stabilizing the foundation to scale the go-to-market team. And then also, as always, when you go public, uh, predictability becomes a super important uh, piece of the equation. And so I was very fortunate enough that Marcus Rue recruited me to, to do that job. And it was all based on our previous working experience and relationships. There's a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about boards. You'd mentioned your board seat just recently, but did board opportunities start getting presented to you or did you re reach a certain point where you said, you know what, I'm ready. I've got a lot I could share. I know I could help, you know, maybe earlier stage companies or, or companies that are from a board perspective. Tell me about the thought process there. I would say that I did not proactively seek 
board seats. Just like the Guidewire story I just told, it was a previous relationship where they were looking for specific help in sales and marketing. And earlier stage companies tend to, when they, they want help, they really want is, uh, access to your network to help recruit some good folks onto the team. I got on the Guidewire board, really, really enjoyed it, but as an operator, really didn't have time to, to do more than one of those. The second board seat that came up also came through an existing relationship with a venture firm that had made a recent investment in a company in the supply chain space. And I would say that for me anyway, independent board seats have always come come about uh, with those two themes in mind. One, a previous relationship with one of the investors, and second, experience in a domain that's very similar to the mm-hmm the company they've invested in. So in the supply chain, Ariba, the Ariba experience really helped because Llamasoft was in the business of uh, supply chain design. Those were the first two. And whenever I was contacted about board seats on very early stage companies, I really didn't seriously consider them most of the, mostly uh, just because I had other things going on, didn't have time to invest in the job. So what advice, I mean, do you have for others who are wanting to follow a similar path that you've had, right? Want to have a successful career as an operator, but also want to start dabbling in the world of private boards. What advice do you have for them? I have, I have an idea based on some of the, you know, the themes, like I've said, I've, I've heard in your conversation today, but what would you tell them? I've found that the investment community, either venture capital or private equity, are actually hungry for folks that have had successful operating careers to play roles on the board. And so, you know, I would say folks that are interested, you should proactively work on not just relationships with your existing investors, but to make it known that if and when they're considering an investment that might have been in an area close to one you've been in the past or one that may have some similar characteristics that you would offer to help um, them in the due diligence process. And that, for me, that's worked. So several opportunities come and, and you'll, you might have to donate some time to help them in their due diligence process. Turns out that you end up helping oftentimes the venture firm win the deal by oftentimes will use their network to help sell the entrepreneurs on the kinds of folks they can bring to bear to give advice or, or support to the management team. And so it's a double win, if you will. And so if you start that process and are patient, you let several folks you've worked with in the past know you're interested in that. You'll get opportunities to run through that due diligence process. You'll learn a lot and then you'll start to be able to pick deals that might be fun or interesting for you to participate in. So it's almost like you got to you got to pay your dues, right? Devote some time to building these relationships and sort of being helpful so that you are, you know, top of mind when opportunities come about that the VC might think that you're relevant for. You could say it's paying it forward a bit, which I've found in my professional career always comes back in bigger ways than I've been able to give. And secondly, for me personally, I had a definite interest in learning the venture business. And so it gave me peeks into pieces of the venture world that I hadn't been involved in before, especially on the front end deal flow part of the business. John, how many boards do you sit on at the moment? We talked about this in our last conversation. There's I sit on seven. We just sold one. So currently seven boards of which three, I'm an independent board director and four, I'm an investing board member. And for the boards that you're on now or have been a part of in the past, when they bring on a new independent director, let's talk about scenarios where it was successful. And what did that person do to kind of really come into the seat and gel with the board, but also make impact? And actually, I'm super curious if there's a scenario, we don't have to give names, of course, (laughs) where someone came in and and really kind of missed the mark. Because again, I think our audience, as they're considering their own future as possible board members, that would be helpful. I mean, I can first talk about my experiences in terms of maybe what I thought board seats were about, and then what I've learned over time. Originally, and Part of this is I had experience as an operator with 
many profiles of uh, board members, ones with operating experience, ones with not, ones early in their investing career, ones very, very late in their career. But uh, one of the, I guess, lessons learned is that the job of a board member, especially as an independent board member, but a board member in general, and this is just my opinion, is that you know, you're really there, one, to coach and not play, one, to try to bring out the founder or the management team's best, uh, really try to focus on their strengths and continue to help put them in spots where they can take advantage of those strengths. And so for me, when board members have come in maybe with more directive or giving strong direction about what management teams should do versus ideas on how they might approach problems they're currently facing, I would say that for me, that's the number one sign that a board member might not be as effective as they could. One of the quotes that sticks with me from one of the CEOs I worked with said, if you always do what your board members tell you to do, you will be fired sooner than later. And so really, as a management team, taking advice and direction from the board is really about taking their ideas, taking pieces of those and and implementing them in your own way. That's maybe a generic statement, maybe a specific example for me. One of the board seats that I took, I won't say the name, but I took it as an independent board director and was proposed by the lead investor. You have to stand on your own in those processes and really convince the CEO normally that you can add value. So I took the board seat, but underestimated how, especially if there's a single investor or a single majority investor, how much control and lack of alignment there potentially can be with the management team. And so I found myself where I thought I was going to focus primarily on helping functional areas of the business or give advice around sales and marketing. I found myself in a position oftentimes sitting between negotiating uh, almost as a peacemaker between investor and management team. So I guess one of the pieces of the time of mine, I didn't really dig into what the relationship had been like between the investor and the management team prior to accepting that role. I focused a lot on what problems they needed to solve in the business and whether I could potentially help them there and didn't focus on the relationships and dynamics at the board level. So I've learned that's a very key thing to, to dig into early. So if you could have gone back, how would you have sussed that out when you were interviewing for that board seat? I think I would have leaned on my enterprise selling skills more and gotten wide in the account, as they say, but I think I would have spent more time face-to-face with all of the board members asking questions about that Mm -hmm. dynamic in the board. In this case, you know, I spoke to the lead investor and the CEO and the other employee that was on the board and really didn't spend much time with the other board members, especially ones that were involved active early, but now we're pretty passive investors. And I think I could have learned a lot more about what I was getting into. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. All right. Well, this has been so interesting today. You've clearly had a, an amazing career and made a lot of great moves to companies that have, have had very successful runs. So you're a very humble guy, but you're quite smart. And like I said, you've done great work with OpenView and our portfolio companies. So for that, I thank you and congrats on, on all of your success to date. And we hope to keep in touch. Thank you so much. Enjoyed the time and really enjoy uh, my time with OpenView. Very understated, high value oriented growth firm with folks that I really enjoy working with. Any entrepreneurs out there that are looking for investor, especially in a product-led company, OpenView, uh, what I found is as good as it gets. Oh, thank you. And I, I swear I didn't ask him to say that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening to podcasts these days. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter, at OpenView Venture, and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.